So if you don't know, a couple of weeks ago, we started a series called Homesick. I'll give you the big idea. The big idea is this. Life can be going super good for you. Like you're getting everything you want, even more. Your football team wins the game nobody thought they would win. Defeating the powerhouse that has denied them for so many years, right? Yeah, but then the next morning you're like, that's it? I can't wait till next Saturday. There's that in so many aspects of our life. You get the right job, the right career, the right amount of money, the right home, whatever your right is. And when you finally get it, you finally arrive, there's a sense in your heart where you say, is this it? I think that's actually healthy. Because all of us, we don't want life to be good. We want life to be great and perfect. Because we are designed for a place called Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. But because of some bad decisions by our great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother, we were exiled out of that and we had to live east of Eden. And from that point on, chapter three of Genesis, we've lived east of Eden. And so there's gonna be these longings in our heart and these desires in our heart that are bigger than this world can actually handle now in its current condition. And that's gonna be with us. It's the way it is. The good news is our destiny is a place just like Eden. It's Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book of the Bible. And there we see a garden city that looks a real, real similar to Genesis, to Eden, except it has a bunch of people there, which I think is what God wanted Adam to do. Be fruitful and multiply, fill this place up, make a garden city. We failed, we couldn't do it. So God says, no problem, I'll do it for you. And your destiny will be this beautiful garden city, right? But when you look at that, that's only four chapters in the Bible. Are there more than four chapters in the Bible? Yeah. So what's the majority of the book about? Living east of Eden. The majority of this book is how people exist when they're not in the place that they know they should be when we live east of Eden. And so this series is, okay, we can feel that. We can all feel that weight of expectation that are never met, how do we live now? So I think in the Bible, you get these great glimpses of men and women who live brilliantly, even though they were outside of Eden. And we get like a clue, what do we do now? What do we do until we get to the garden city of New Jerusalem? What do we do now? So last week was Moses. And Moses did this, he fought. He fought the Pharaohs that were causing the world to be even worse than it should be. He stood up to them. I think we're called to do that. As the people of Jesus, we're to look forward to what the kingdom should look like and we're to fight for it to look like that right now. That God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we fight for that. That's number one. Number two, we meet our character number two and she's a woman. Her name is Esther. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Esther. If you struggle to find it, welcome to the crowd. It's super hard. It's like two pages and then it's gone. (laughs) If you're smart, you'll turn to the table of contents and then you'll find the page, which it's 316, and then you'll just turn to it, all right? But if you wanna struggle and act like you're a pro when you're not, then go ahead. Your neighbors will not judge you. 
I will, because I can hear it and see it. So, Esther. I'll give you the background, and then we'll look at the lesson she teaches us as we live homesick. Chapter one, verse one. Still a lot of pages turning. (laughs) Table of contents, I'm telling you. All the young people are like, I just press a button. It goes right to it. I don't know, it's so hard, man. You guys are crazy. <laughs> now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Anyone good in geography? India to Ethiopia, big or small? Massive, right? This dude is a very, very powerful individual. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he's a young man, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media And the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. We meet the king. His name is Ahasuerus. History tells us this. He's the spoiled son of King Darius. And he is not a good dude. He's a tyrant. He's a probably megalomaniac. So he comes onto the scene And here's what I think we're seeing right here, according to history. He actually goes and he tries to make war with Greece because Greece is gonna be the next empire that raises up and has authority over a giant tract of land because there's this young man named Alexander the Great who leads Greece and defeats the Medo-Persian Empire, right? So he goes and tries to preempt it, gets defeated brutally in war, comes back. So now he's worried. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, I just lost my first big battle. This is not good. Uh, This is not good at all. So he gets all the governors together, brings them in and starts to show off. Look how powerful I am. Look how much stuff I have. Look, 180 day party with you guys, right? So he's overcompensating. Look at my greatness. Look how powerful I am, right? He's like, someone just laughed. I know where you're going, but I'm not. <laughs> he's like the guy that jumps out of the giant jacked up truck and he's five foot two. You're like, okay, I get it. All right, enjoy your truck, bro. And the stepladder. He's overcompensating, okay? So we have all that, right? He's trying to flex his muscle. He's all swole up. Look at me. Now look what happens to him. Okay. On the seventh day, verse 10, When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he's drunk. He commanded Mahuman, 
Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zather, and Carcass. Why can't it be like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, man? I mean, it's like, ah! <laughs> the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Let's imagine this for a second. He's trying to act all swole. And his wife is like, no. <laughs> right? It's like, oh man, I wish I was there. That would be fun. Okay? So to try to make this, I went super long. I actually barely made it to this service. So <laughs> I'm trying to make it shorter right now. But here's what happens. He is mad. But then his, the, the men, the young men that are around him say this, oh no, if Queen Vashti did this to you and you're the king, what are other women gonna do to their husbands? This could be really, really bad. Look at verse 17. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. <laughs> Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come, so I ain't doing the dishes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Big problem in the kingdom. He's like, ah, how is this happening to me? I lost this battle through this feast and now this. Oh, no, right? So here's their idea. They're like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. You fire Queen Vashti and then we'll send out to the 120 provinces from Ethiopia to India that Queen Vashti got fired. And women, you better look out because you'll get fired too. And so the king's like, good idea. Okay, let's do that. Right, so that's chapter one. Chapter two. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. He gets sober, and he stops being angry. Stupid decisions are made by men when they're angry and drunk, right? Here's one. Then, verse two, the king's young men. Listen, if you're young in here, and you're married, do not listen to young men telling you how to do your marriage. Okay, period. You talk to somebody who's been married at least 25 years. If they haven't been married 25 years, they're still a newlywed. Just think of them that way. It's at 25 years that you actually know how things work, right? Don't listen to young men telling you how to do your marriage. Most of them are morons. I've been married 18 years. I'm still a moron, okay? 25 is my key. That's the number. What's that called? The silver Silver, when you get the silver wedding anniversary, then start telling people how to get married, how to do a marriage. Okay, so he listens to the young men. Listen to what the young men say. Listen to what they say. Let 
beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. Oh, I bet it did. <laughs> Good idea, young men. Let's do that. So that's what he does. Has this massive gathering of these young virgins into his harem. And here's what's gonna happen. It's gonna be Persian Idol or The Bachelor multiplied by a billion. And they're gonna each get one night with King Ahasuerus. And if they don't make King Ahasuerus super stoked, they're gonna be stuck in a halfway house living as a widow for the rest of their life. That's the brutalness of this time and this empire. King Ahasuerus is such a bad dude. He's assassinated in 465 BC by his own dudes. They're like, we just gotta get rid of you, man. You're a megalomaniac, right? I mean, this is a brutal story. I don't know how many women are brought, 100? 500, massive area, right? 499 of them are gonna live in a halfway house as widows for the rest of their life. And one wins it. It's a brutal story, totally brutal story, okay? So that's this side. We got King Ahasuerus. All right, let's meet Esther. Verse five. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. You got King Ahasuerus, who's just able to say things and it's done has power like we can't imagine today. Tyrant. On the other side, you've got Esther. Esther, number one, Esther's in exile. She's living somewhere outside of Babylon, maybe like Ezekiel in a refugee camp next to a sewage canal, not the best of circumstances. So she's in exile, number one. Number two, she's an orphan. Is there any more vulnerable place in the world than being an orphan? But I don't know one. And her cousin, who's older than her, takes her on and adopts her. Number three, she's a despised minority. We will see very shortly that in chapter three, the Jews are not liked and it's a liability. So she's part of this despised minority and she's hiding it, isn't she? What name does she, goes by, does she go by? Esther, what's her real name? 
Hadessa. Hadessa is Jewish. Esther is actually a god of the Babylonians, Ishtar. So she is going by the name of a goddess named Ishtar in order to hide the fact that she is Jewish, part of the family of Yahweh. So she is nothing like a Daniel. A Daniel is like, hey, listen, I'm standing up for what I believe in. And she's the exact opposite. I'm hiding this either because she's ashamed of being a child of Yahweh or she's afraid of it. One of the two, right? Number four, she's a woman. And what does chapter one tell us about the way that women were being treated in this kingdom? Yeah, like property, like slaves, no rights. The men ruled with iron fists. And then fifthly, she's living in disobedience. If you know history, you know this. By the time of Esther, God had already said to the people, go home. He brought up this king named Cyrus. Cyrus said, everybody can go home. So there's, there's actually these waves in Ezra and Nehemiah of people leaving exile and going back to their home. But some of the Jews said no to God. No, we're not going home. We're happy in exile. We like it here in Babylon. We're staying. They're disobedient. The whole book of Esther is about a group of people that were saying to God, no, in disobedience, we're staying here. And the reason the crisis happened is because they're in disobedience. But what does God still do? Protects them and saves them. It makes the story so much better when you know that. Like God doesn't say, okay, you made your bed, sleep in it. Good luck with that one. God doesn't. He still reaches out and loves and uses them, uses this disobedient, exiled woman orphan. It's amazing to me. God uses all the wrong people. Do you know that? Let me read for you. I have this list of the people God uses. Listen to this. Here's who God uses. Moses stuttered. We studied him last week. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos's only training was in the school of fig tree pruning. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon was too rich. Jesus was too poor. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. It's normally a big problem. <laughs> John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist was a loud mouth. Martha was a worry wart. Mary was lazy. Samson had long hair. Big problem. <laughs> Noah got drunk. And did I mention that Moses had a short fuse? You've got Esther, exiled, disobedient, orphan. Ain't God can use you? I think so, Okay. So this sets it up. What happens now? So she's in Persian idol. Verse nine. And the young woman pleased him, won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place. She's got God's favor. She just has God's favor. So how's it go down? Well, skip forward. So 
Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as, own, as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She wins. Or maybe she loses, depending on your perspective of Ahasuerus. She wins it. Like, you know, you could say, hey, this is a rags to riches story. The exiled, orphan, disobedient gal makes it to the palace, right? But guess what? If you keep reading the story, there is no happily ever after. In fact, I don't know a story in the Bible that ends with happily ever after because we're in exile. There's no such thing as happily ever after. Here's what you see in chapter three, read it. In fact, read the whole book of Esther. In fact, just read the Bible. It's really good. So in chapter three, we introduced this dude named Haman and Haman hates Jews, especially Mordecai. Builds a gallow to hang him. He tricks the king, king is not very there, the, tricks the king into signing a law that says this, hey, there's gonna be a day that if you want to, you can kill a Jew. And after you kill a Jew, you can have his stuff. So if you have a Jewish neighbor who's got a really nice house, then on this day, you just go over there and kill him and it's your house, right? Set up to annihilate the Jews from India to Ethiopia, a slaughter, okay? So this law is made by Haman. Mordecai finds out about it. So Mordecai's like, oh, this is bad. So he starts to sit outside of the temple and he dresses in sackcloth and ashes. Looks really bad. The news of him dressing like that comes to Esther and Esther's like, oh, you're embarrassing me, Mordecai. So she sends him new clothes. Like, hey, I was at H&M and there's this really nice pair of jeans. I thought of you when I bought them. Put them on, please. He's like, no, I won't put them on. Why? So Mordecai says, here's why. There's this law coming and we're gonna be slaughtered. And you need to go in and you need to talk to the king about this. So now we get her answer, chapter four, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Mordecai, you gotta go talk to the king about this. Esther, listen, Mordecai, you don't understand the palace. No one marches into the king's inner chamber. You can't do that. You get, it's death penalty. You cannot do that. And me and the king, we had a little spat about 30 days ago. He's moody, he's angry, you already know that. That's what happened to Vashti and he has not called me. We're, not, we're on the outs right now. You don't know what you're asking me to do. You don't know 
what could possibly happen to me. I can die. So Esther is in the palace. She won Persian Idol. She's the bachelorette, whatever you want to say. She gets it all. She's Cinderella. But is she safe? No. In fact, her position is now putting her in more danger than if she had not won. She'd just be in a halfway house, living out her existence. Okay? I say that because there's this idea that, that we have, I think we're fed it from the time we're little. If you can just get fill in the blank, you'll be safe. If you can just get this amount of stuff, right? If you can just have this much money in your bank account, when you retire, you'll be safe. If you just get this kind of job, you'll be safe. If you just have this, if you pay off your home, if you have a body fat index of 5% or less, you're safe, right? Whatever it is, we're told these lies. That's what they are. It just takes one bad case of the flu to realize how tenuous life is. That when you think, man, life is good, I'm at the top. All of a sudden you get whacked with something. And the report came back, it's cancer. It's incurable. What? But I've exercised and my body fat, it, yeah, yeah. You get served papers. Divorce, what? I thought we were doing so good. Well, I got fired from a job, what? Right? Most people have experienced that. Right when you think you've got life by the tail, it turns around and bites you. The palace does not prevent problems. The palace, whatever palace you are dreaming of, it's not gonna prevent problems. There is no happy ever after, okay? So we're in exile like Esther. What does she do? Listen, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. How brilliant is that? Then Esther told him, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. How brilliant is that? What do we do in exile? Like Esther? We're to risk. We're to risk. She risks her identity as a Jew. She's gonna tell me she's a Jew, which at that point was a liability. You could be killed for that. And then she was gonna risk her position as queen, which marching in, to the king's inner court, unannounced, also carried the risk of death. And she just says, okay, for such a time as this, if I perish, I perish. Okay, I'm going. I love that. I love that. And because she does this, to this day, there's a feast celebrated called the Feast of Purim. 
that celebrates the fact that Esther risked everything to save a nation of disobedient exiles. I think personally that very little, very little of eternally important things ever happen without risk. In whatever range it is, in your family, in your marriage, in a business, in a church, very little of eternal significance ever happens without there being some kind of risk. I think we know that. David, did he risk? There's this big dude over there that wants to slaughter you. Yeah, I'll take him on. Moses, did he risk? I'm going back to the place where they said, let's kill him. Yeah. Esther, she risks. Paul, how many times did he risk? Over and over and over and over and over again. I think we know that. And yet, most of us are deathly afraid of risking. You know why? I think there are three reasons. Fear, the illusion of control. I can control this. No, you can't. And then selfishness. And those three combined, what they do is they paralyze us and prevent us from every stepping out into brilliant things that God has for us. That's what they do. But life is full of risk. It's just the way it is. Most of you right now are sitting next to a person you took a giant risk on when you said, I do. Right? <laughs> we think we know our spouses until we move in with them. We're like, oh my goodness, that was a risk. <laughs> Some of you are still wondering about the return on investment. Like, I don't know if this is penciling now, right now. <laughs> Life is full of risk. That's just the way it is. You have to risk. So I could do a message on any one of those, no problem. But to me, what actually cures all three is one thing. It's faith. Faith cures fear and the illusion of control and my selfishness. And it's like this, this is how I explained it on a Wednesday night, I don't know, three months ago. I said, it's like this. I think God requires faith in life, in risk, because if he actually explained it, I don't know if we'd do it. That's what I think. So I said, it's like this. It's, it's um, a number of years ago, we, we got a little doughboy pool and my brother-in-law <clears throat> moved to the Amazon jungle. So I went and borrowed his slide for the pool. I still have it to this day. So I set it up. <laughs> And it's like eight feet tall. And my daughter, Carissa, she was four years old at the time. And I get it all set up and, and I'm like, hey, sweetie, go on the slide. And you know how that is with a four-year-old. I don't know, it's scary. So I'm like, it's okay, okay. And, and so I said, I'll be in the water, I'll get you. So she's up on top, she will not go. So she looked at me and she said this, dad, what's gonna happen to me? Now let's say I did this. I said, okay, sweetie, here's what's gonna happen to you. You are about eight feet off the ground. The coefficient of friction between your swimsuit and the slide is 0.18. Gravity will begin to act on your 42 pounds over that eight feet at the bottom of the slide with that coefficient of friction, you'll be going 12.3 miles per hour. Your feet will hit first at a force of 9,672 newtons. This force will flop your face forward and you'll face plant into the water. It will cause your eyelids to peel back and water will gush up in your eyes possibly blinding you. It will stretch out your third through seventh vertebrae, exposing your spinal column to potential paralysis. It should be okay though. Your mind will be temporarily messed up. And if I do not get there quick enough, you will inhale water and die. 
come down the slide to me. <laughs> right? I think sometimes we want God to do that. And what God says is, come down the slide. I'm in the water. Trust me. That's what I said. Hey, I'm here. I'm in the pool. Trust me. Slide. And that's all he tells us. And there's risk with it. If I perish, I perish. Okay. Without faith, there'll be no risk. Without risk, there's no power. And without power, there's no joy in life. Exile has no joy. It's that over and over. If you and I aren't willing to risk, then there's a story in the Bible told about us. We end up like these, these, this crew that came right to the edge of the promised land. They are finally gonna get out of homesickness. And instead of going in, guess what they did? Send in 12 people to check it out. These 12 people go in and check it out. 10 of them are hyper-conservative. Two of them are like, God is great. They come back. All of them say, man, it's a brilliant land. Flowing with milk and honey. It's an awesome land. It's home. But then the 10 said, the risks are too great. The cities have big, thick walls and the people are tall. I mean, they're really tall. And the Jews said, what are you talking about? God's in the pool with us. Let's go. But they wouldn't go in. And so instead for 40 years, they meander and wander around in the wilderness in exile. Ever felt like your life is meandering and wandering around the wilderness? Maybe God called you to step out of something and it just didn't quite pencil out. Okay, I think church sometimes, I think sometimes with church, we can run church like a business and say, this stuff just doesn't pencil out anymore. And God's saying, what are you talking about? I'm in the pool, what do you mean? Instead of saying, you know what? Church isn't a business, church is a battleship. And battleships are built to fight and to risk and to go in where no one else wants to go in. That's what a church is supposed to be. We go into this place, we take risks and we won't look out. I think we can end up just kind of meandering and wondering, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? What are we? Well, you're called to walk into the promised land and you didn't. How do we risk then? It's not like we're Esther and we're being called to walk in before the king. How do we risk? She risks two things. And I'm almost done. I know I went long. It's my last Sunday out here. Some are cold, some are hot, which is biblical. Be hot or cold. No one's lukewarm. So <laughs> here's what I think you risk. She risked her position as queen. I think God puts us in positions for such a time as this that some of you are business leaders or you own whatever and you're there for such a time as this. Like, I don't know if I'd be doing what I'm doing if someone hadn't taken a risk on me. So 1998, I got invited to teach morning devotions at Applegate. Staff was like 70 people. And um, I'm like, wow, I taught like two Bible studies at that point with, to like toddlers. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Okay, let's do this. And it, not only was it 70 of the people at Applegate, but it was also on the number one radio station in all of Rouge, Oregon. So it's a big <laughs> opportunity for me. <laughs> it's gonna blow the doors off of it. And what happened very often in those meetings was John would come in and he'd just take over. I'm gonna do this instead. And it's always gonna be brilliant. So I'm there and he, he's not at many of the staff meetings. All of a sudden he comes in, I'm like, okay, I'm off the hook. No, after praise is over, he looks at me and goes, you're up. And I probably totally butchered it and 
Didn't do nearly as well as he would have done, but you know what? The fact that he risked on me meant so much to me. You gave me a, oh my goodness, wow, thank you. Are we in the positions God have placed us in? Are we willing to take risks on people? So I'm walking with this guy on Tuesday who just moved up here, getting away from bad stuff. He's like, I want a clean break. I want to serve Jesus. So we're talking to him. He's trying to get a job up here, young man, but he has a felony on his record. He's like, yeah, I applied to this job. And they said no to me because of the felony. He's trying to get things straightened out. Yeah, we got to be careful not doubt who we hire. But I was, here's what I was really impressed with. I called a bunch of godly business owners at Edgewater and told them about this young man. And they're like, yeah, okay. I love that. That's risking for people. We're supposed to risk for people like that. The positions God has put us in will risk for people. It may not pencil out, but it doesn't matter, right? I think businesses that are owned by believers should do things differently than the world does it. Or you just become a concubine for this system. You prostitute your morals. Everyone does it that way. Yeah, yeah, but who cares? I love Chick-fil-A. I've never eaten there. But you know why I love them? What'd they say? Yeah, we're not gonna be open on Sunday. That's suicidal. Yeah, we don't care. I think they got God's favor. God said, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I'm gonna bless the socks off you, right? Do we risk our positions as parents or are we always saying, hey, kids, be safe? Are we saying to our kids, go risk, go on the mission field? Or you gotta get a career. Do we risk that position? Right? Do we risk, like our position, young people especially, with friends? Do we risk and say, hey, I gotta tell you about Jesus. I know you may not like this or whatever, it doesn't matter because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation. Old people, do, when's the last time you shared the good news with somebody? Or are we unwilling now to risk that and be like, well, they might think I'm weird. They may not give the golden scepter to me. You're not gonna perish. Do we risk anymore? Okay. She risked her position, number one. Number two. Am I off? No, hey. The batteries are wearing out because I've been going a long time. (laughs) Secondly, she risked her identity. And telling people that she was Jewish at this time was not good. It was a liability. There's a law out that says you can die. I think we have to be willing as believers to share our own liabilities, where we've been broken. Because a lot of times what happens with people that look in on church from the outside, they just think everybody's got it together there. No way. We found the one that does, but that doesn't mean that we have. Like there was two video testimonies that, that I, I received more feedback on than any else. One was this. It was an elder's wife at that time. And just, they seemed like they had the perfect life. And she gets on this testimony. She says this. She said, one of the hardest days of my life was when my husband walked into me and said, I want a divorce. And you can almost hear that God, her? Yeah. And so many people are like, oh, oh, it's okay to be broken. I just don't want to stay there. And the second one was a man who in front of all of us said, I was molested as a boy by another man. And his willingness to be super broken like that. I got so many emails from people. Wow, I can't believe he would do that. Wow, that sets me free. Are we willing to risk that? Our own brokenness, our own identities and and tell people about where we're at. I think it's biblical. Romans seven, Paul says, the step I wanna do, I'm not doing. 
On the stuff I don't wanna do, that's what I'm doing. Or how about David? David writes three Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and Psalm 55. Those three Psalms are all about his sin, adultery and murder. Can you imagine that? And these were not songs that he wrote and was like, I'm just gonna hide these under my bed so no one else can read them. Maybe they'll be discovered in years down the, no. These are songs to be sung in church. Could you imagine Trevor getting up here and be like, I wrote a new song. It's about my personal sin. Please join in when you know the words. <laughs> right? You'd be like, oh my goodness. Especially with Trevor, it'd be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> that, it's just saying, hey, we can't pretend that we're not broken. We can't pretend that way. And we're not going to. We're taking off our masks. And it's a risk, definitely. But I think that as people, and even as a church, as I'm thinking about it, we gotta be like this. I I don't play cards, but but I've watched them play cards on movies. And there's a point, right, where where you take like all your chips and you just shove them to the center of the table and you just say, I'm all in. Everything's riding on this. If I lose, I'm out, I perish. But I'm all in. I think that's what God's looking for. I'm all in. That's what Esther had to say. I'm all in. If I perish, I perish. But I'm all in. And whatever this risk is, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Fast, pray for me. But I'm all in. I think that's the Christian life. That's how we dominate in exile. Miracles happen when people like Esther risk. As a believer, here's what I'd say. There's actually no risk. Here's why. I'll read this for you and I'm done. It's Romans chapter eight. And this is what it says. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written. Hard things have happened. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you believe that? And there's no risk, only obedience. I think sitting here right now, there are people that are being called into the mission field and people that are called to go plant churches and people that are being called to go start Bible studies and community groups, and it's risk. But if you actually believe this, there's no risk. Because in all these things, the Bible says you're more than a conqueror. You become Esther's. That's what happens to you, okay? Let's be a church that just says, we're all in. We're all in. We're all in, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray. We have our last baptismal. 
We'll always take you down to Baker Park if you wanna get baptized after this. So it's not like this is it. We may lose you in the river, but I haven't lost somebody yet. But today, maybe your need to say, I'm all in. And baptism is a great way of saying I'm all in. I'm wearing the jersey now. I'm identifying as Team Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power that saved me. And you come and you get immersed in these waters. And Romans 6 says, the old you die and there's a brand new you that's resurrected. Brilliant, beautifully. You can be baptized. Also, we have prayer available. Prayer has power. What does Esther say when she knows she's supposed to do something? Get the crew together. I'll get my crew together. I'm gonna fast and pray because there's power in that. So we'd love to pray for you right here. Whatever your need is, doesn't matter what it is, we'd love to pray for you, okay? And then Trevor's gonna come back up, sing one final song. You're welcome to just leave or you can just sit and think and pray as well. It's up to you. So Jesus, We are so easily deceived into believing that we control things. Help us to know that you're the controller. We're so easily persuaded by the lies of the enemy that we have to be afraid. Help us to know that you're in the pool and we don't have to be afraid. We are so self-absorbed. <laughs> Forgive us of that. May we have the same mind that was in you that even though you're one with God, you made yourself of no reputation and took upon yourself the form of a servant that you were made in the likeness of mankind. And you humbled yourself even to the death of the cross. That's the mind that needs to be in us. Kill selfishness in us. I pray, Lord, for those who need to step out of the boat and walk on water, do things they cannot imagine. I pray for your spirit today to fill and empower your church that we might see in Grant's pass your will, will being done in Grant's past, as it already has been done in heaven. So fill us with faith so that we can obey. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. <laughs>